Hello and welcome to the first cycling ramble of 2018 with me, Adam Bailey. And me, Ollie Baisley. So we are back after an, an extended break over Christmas and the cycling season is also back. In fact, it's been back for quite a few weeks now. But while the riders have started the year in sunny Australia, Spain, um, also in Dubai as well, and in Colombia uh, this week, Ollie and I have been busy revising for university exams. It's a hard life being a student, isn't it, Ollie? It's it's hard on occasions, especially during the exam period. Um, I think some people, sometimes people forget kind of the stress of it. Um, but I'm sure the stress is you know in every form of life, but uh, it's an intense period of time, and I'm really glad to be through it with it. Yeah, sad, sad, sadly, we'll just have to focus on talking about cycling because and focus on our studies because we're never going to become a professional cyclist, are we? Ollie? That one's gone. Um, so we have to know, focus on our, our unless our some sort now. of you know genetic advancement, you know, some sort of uh, bizarre technology to do with that um but no not for me um but anyway how was your christmas what did you get up to yeah it was good it was been good re- relaxing a few weeks away i said that. i've had lots of deadlines a few weeks away from the cycling world i said it was hard to not catch up on any cycling stories after the Froome story which we'll discuss later on in the podcast broke just before we finished for christmas so keeping a track on that i said that not a lot has happened in terms of the off season but now the cycling season does in full swing and i said that it's a hard life being a, a student at the, at the top of the podcast but ollie i saw that you've been on holiday twice <laughs> in the last few weeks in my defense um i think i spent as probably as much nearly as much time working and studying as any student that i know um, but i have been away twice um i went away to finland for new year which was incredible i recommend everybody to go up um, to the arctic circle it was really nice we saw the northern lights and just after my exams i kind of uh, ran away to the Alps for and Lizark for a week um, to do some skiing, which is um, probably my favourite sport to partake. Sorry to offend some of you cycling fans out there, but um, I've been skiing for a long time and I love it. Um, but yeah, there was, I had a lot of exams and uh, sorted out a master's course for myself and uh, also a summer internship. So I was busy over the break, um, but no, it's been really rewarding. And I've actually missed cycling. You know, sometimes doing the podcast, you kind of have a lock at it. A lot of it, I have to read a lot. I have to be really fully involved. There's no kind of time away often. Um, but I've really missed it over the last couple of weeks. And I'm excited for this season. Um, I've kind of been able to like compartmentalize the Froome issue and not let that kind of bother me and kind of take away from the season to come. Um, and we'll discuss that at the end of today's show um, to kind of give you guys who don't want to hear about it a break. Um, but yeah, I'm so excited for the season. It's going to be um, exciting to say the least. It's set up in dramatic fashion and uh, let's bring it on. It's been some good racing so far as well in the season, especially down under. It has and we'll discuss that in a few moments time. But first of all, I don't really like the start of the season. Well, every new season that comes on because you have to get used to the new team names, the new kits and also um seeing riders changing teams and wearing the kits that no, you're, that's exciting. you're not used to seeing it's not because trying to remember the, the new team names so we had formerly Orica Scott last year I'm going to say that they originally had Orica Exchange Green Exchange but now it is Mitchell and Scott so that's what we've got to remember Mitchell that, and Scott no, that, for this that, year that Orica to me it's that's so hard they've been Orica for so long I came into the sport you know quite a few years ago now but they were Orica at the time and yeah that's that's one which is going to take a while but and actually, I've got EF Education First down because I went for an interview for a master's course at their London office. Um, a company, one of the uh, universities I was applying to um, does interviews out there. Um, so yeah, to be fair, very nice company, very nice offices, very nice staff. Um, so I'm kind of rooting for them in some ways. Um, but th- I think that one I'll grasp. Their pink kit, however... I'm struggling. It's like an ultra retro kind of very, you know, anti-establishment kind of pink move. Yeah, it reminds We've seen me pink... of the Lamprey kit very much. The Lamprey kit. It, I'll tell you what, one thing it will do, it will stand out when you're on TV or riding in the peloton. Maybe that's why they, they did it. And that's, of course, um, the former Cannondale Draypack team. They've now become EF Education First Draypack because the main sponsor, um, they've changed. And they always used to wear green, but now they've gone even more colourful in this fluorescent pink. Yeah, the, I said the Lamprey kit was more tasteful um but it's equally impressive and good for the sponsor because they're going to get plenty of uh you know publicity with that kit and it's going to be very visible which is exactly one movie star 
I'm not quite decided on that one yet. I think it looks nice, but how it fits into the peloton, I'm not quite sure. Team Sky's white kit is an interesting development. I'm a big fan, I think. If we saw it at last year's tour, sort of it would have made, carried it on. I think it would have made much more of a difference and been a much better kind of star if there hadn't been this quiz room image because maybe we could have looked at it as, look, you know, this is kind of a new era of Team Sky. You know, we've got this serial Grand Tour champion where we're really investing in the future and, you know, in the future of non-British riders as well. Um, but that got disrailed a bit. But nevertheless, I think it's a fantastic kit. And uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it blends. Quick Step are pretty much very similar. Um, I thought they'd changed their team name. I thought some sponsors were outgoing there. I'm not quite sure what happened with that in the end. Um, but it's going to be a fascinating season. And I think that's part of the joy of cycling. It's kind of a, you know, it stops and starts every season. The transfers, the kind of evolution of people moving teams, the storylines progressing. Um, I think that's the fun of the sport. And it's nice to have a sport also, which runs on a different calendar from the September to September that, you know, football and rugby uh, run on in the UK. So it's a nice change. And I always enjoy looking forward to the season. I have to say, I'm still waiting to see the, the advert I don't think it's been released yet of Mar- Marcel Kitt of course he moves from Quick Step Floors to Katusha Alperson and Alperson of course of the, 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 the shampoo and I've got to say Mar- Mar- Marcel Kitt I'm still waiting for that advert of, of him running his fingers through his hair saying I now use Al- Alperson shampoo I'm sure it won't be too long they've done before it before they've they just got to do it again they've got to shoot a slightly different one or they just photoshop the uh, jerseys in this time I'm sure <laughs> it won't be too long before we see Marcel Kittle on our screens but I said that Katusha Alperson, they've also changed their kit. They've gone from that all red kit from last year um, to replaced with one that actually includes um, a bit a bit more blue. And I'm no doubt it is one um, that we will we will see a lot this season um, running away from or cycling away at the front of the peloton in those sprints. I said that it wasn't the best of starts from Marcel Kittel to today at the, at, the, at the Dubai Tour. He suffered a mechanical and wasn't able to contest the sprint. But we'll talk about uh, that race in a few moments. But first of all, we'll start the start of the season. There's been a number of races to get us, us going. Have any races or results caught your attention so far, Ali? I think the biggest race of the early part of the season, it might not be the most prestigious or maybe the one that's occurred for the longest, but I think the Tour Down Under is kind of the standout event, especially of January. Um, February has much more racing, um, but it still feels like the kind of the most significant racing that's been happened and the most exciting. I love the Tour Down Under because ultimately it's really not that significant unless a rider crashes or gets injured, but it's just a fun event in itself. And to see kind of riders do well and their home turf if they're Australian, um, but also, you know, have a good start to the season. And I think Daryl Impey's performance, you know, he won the race just ahead of uh, Richie Port. Very impressive. Pretty surprising. I think you would have got some pretty long odds on him. Um, despite him being a rider who is kind of suited to the parkour of the Tour Down Under, um, I wouldn't have guessed that he would have necessarily won. He's played second fiddle to Simon Gerrans for an awful lot of years at the ex Orica, at the now Michigan Scott uh, team. And you always felt that the reason he played second fiddle was part of, probably because he was worse than Gerrans. Otherwise, he'd be the leader. And I was pretty surprised by his performance. Richie Port is always kind of where he needs to be. Um, you know, he always does well in the Tour Down Under. Especially so. on Willunga Will- 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 Hill again. But the Daryl Impey did well. It's interesting to see the, the, the different types of riding styles on that, comparing the Daryl Impey and Richie Poor, because you saw that Richie Poor, this aggre- aggressor, has got a very good record on the hill, and you saw that he was using all his talent of the climbing ability and his record. Whereas the Daryl Impey, he was more of a, a, a tactician. And I have to say, Mitchell and Scott, I got, I got it right, um, play the tactics perfectly because they carefully plotted his race before riding what was a real smart uh, race on the hill to to, to l- limit his his l- l- losses and for all of Port's muster and telegraphed attacks Impey was has not really attacked once during the race instead he just chipped away with bonus seconds in the early stages and then really s- solidified his position with a what was a, a real strong ride and well um, rid- ridden ride on on the hill and I can't remember the last time actually that we've ever had, or I can't remember a time where an overall classification has been worn on countback because Davil Olympia and Richie Poor exact same time, and it came down um, to one of the early stages where where they finished. I don't know how that works though, because as 
And when I saw it initially, I thought they had it wrong uh, because Richie Port wins the stage. And as far as I aware, I thought it went back to how many stages you'd won. And then it went back to count back. But no, I think it goes back to kind of average finishing position or yeah, something I'm like that. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure how it, how it is. But it is great to see Darrell MP because he, he's not won an awful lot in the last few years. He had a spell up until about 2013, I think. And then I think he won a couple of stages uh, last year. But other than that, but he's had said... Domestic, but it was a brilliant ride um, by the Darrell to take. And actually, it's been a brilliant start to the year for Mitchell and Scott. And they've, they've had a change in, of, of name, but they're certainly carrying on from where they, they le- left off last year because of the Herald Sonsontor, Esteban Chavez won his first win um, since the 2015 Abbey de Dabi Tour. And it, it was great to see him not only uh, well, winning races again because because he finished was it second at the 2016 Giro d'Italia people expected it to be a big, big year for him last year um, but obviously he had that he suffered a knee injury quite early on was it in training quite early on in, in the spring which meant he was off the bike for a number of weeks he rode the Tour de France but finished I think it was in the 60ths in the overall classification rode the Valter um, just finished outside the, the top 10 and then in September at the, the Giro um, del Emily he crashed and fractured his, his shoulder blade he's been very very unlucky with injuries in his career but there was no doubt that he has a very, got a very very talented rider and it's going to be interesting to see how he, do, how he does this year I had a look at his um, p- proposed schedule for the year and he's going to ride the, the Giro, Giro d'Italia and the Valtteri Spagna and you'd guess that if he can carry on the form he's already shown I know it's still early in the season but if he can show what he has shown in the past and already this season he could be certainly up there um, contending in the, the, the Giro and the, the Valtteri I want to say something quite contra- controversial but I think Michelin Scott should be winning races at this time of the year. It's a tour down under. They're an Australian team. They should be winning the race. You know, they should be really targeting it because it's a really important race for their market and for their sponsor. So it doesn't surprise me that they won. Darrell Impey's performance is slightly surprising, but I think the, one of the my favourite moments and wins of all time, or also in cycling, was when uh, Simon Gerrans won in the 2013 Tour de France, and then they also won the team time trial and they took the yellow jersey, and then how um, Simon Gerrans passed it to Darrell Impey. And on stage eight, Darrell MP tried to valiantly defend it and ended up losing it to Chris Froome. I think, you know, with Esteban Chavez, the, what a lot of the new cycling fans might not know is that before he signed for Orica, he had been uh, long, t- really injured for a long term. That's the thing. It was in 2013. He suffered what was a, I think the, the doctor said he might never ever ride in a, a professional manner or even ride again because I think it was, he crashed into a signpost and he suffered what was a potential career ending injury. So to come back and to ride how to finish second the Giro d'Italia 2016 some other good results and then also the, the disruption last year of the injuries and to bounce back again he's certainly showing that he means business and he's, he's a Tour de l'Avenir winner so you'd yeah. expect that sort of form and another Tour de l'Avenir winner who really kind of shone for me especially in his first you know major race and being given the leadership of Team Sky so early Egan Bernal did brilliantly he you know he ultimately finished sixth overall um, which is a very impressive performance for somebody so young and you know this is why Team Sky are paying him a fortune as well as him and Pavel Sitkov they're going to be stars of the future so definitely keep an eye on him as we go through the season because I think there's plenty more to come if you're getting the Team Sky leadership so early they must be very confident in his ability absolutely and Peter Sagan won the overall first points classification win of the 2018 season. I don't think that will be his last one either this year. Um, but another race that has taken place, this time in Spain, um, was the Tour of Valencia. And Alejandro Valverde, 37, another one who's come back from a horrific injury. Uh, I remember it was on the, the prologue or the first stage of last year's Tour de France. A horrific crash um, when he shattered his kneecap and then broke one of his bones. And it's not only great to see Valverde winning races at the age of 37, but it is great just to see him back back on the bike after that horrific crash, Ollie. Yeah, absolutely. Valverde and me have a special relationship. Whenever I predict him to win, uh, he loses. Whenever I predict him to lose, he wins. And it's a very 
unsurprising result for me. I think Valverde, you know, maybe into his 50s, he'll still be winning something ridiculous like that. Um, but he's always very good at winning the early uh, season races, especially the classics, um, partly because most of the other climbers target Grand Tours, and that's just the reality. Um, whereas I think Valverde is always prioritised doing well across the season more than maybe just peaking for one absolute race. But maybe that's how he is better physiologically. Um, and I think, yeah, that performance wasn't that surprising, but it it was a fantastic race if you didn't catch it um, it was really great um, Rob Hatch was doing commentary and it's a pleasure hearing him on the mic again and yeah I really enjoyed kind of catching the highlights of that and uh, reading up about it and also watching a small bit of it live so um, it was a great race um, wish we could have kind of previewed it beforehand but it is what it is and uh, there's plenty more great races coming up as well do you think Val for Valverde's role might differ a little bit this year because the, the arrival of Michael Lander to movie star, do you think it's brilliant? Targeting it's absolutely brilliant. If you're, a, you know, unless you're a movie star fan, and if you're, a, if you, you try and look at it as a neutral perspective, it's absolutely fantastic because Mikel Landon is going to disrupt so much of that team. Quintana is underperformed, uh, especially last season compared to his really high standards, and so Mikel Landon come in after you know probably being the second best rider at last year's Tour de France he's really got a lot to live up to, but also I think he's got a lot of kind of will to prove his ability. And I think he's been announced that all three, Quintana, Valverde and Lando going to the Tour de France this year, which is going to be explosive. So um, surely Movistar should win one, out, out of one of those guys because, you know, although Tom Dumoulin has now announced that he's going for the Giro um, alongside Froome probably um, the tour is kind of an open goal at the moment in my opinion especially for a rider of Quintana's calibre so I think if he doesn't win this year then I wouldn't be surprised if he leaves Movistar because he's maybe stagnated for a couple of years compared to what people expect him to do um, but yeah I can't wait to see how that in play is because Lander definitely doesn't like playing the team card yeah. Well, said that, yeah, I suppose we saw that a little bit in the Tour, Tour de France last year. He did it, but he let you... Chris great assets. He did it, but he let you know that he wasn't happy about it. It's a bit like Chris Froome riding for Bradley Wiggins. Um, so, and I think those rivalries into team kind of discussions and how that plays out is fascinating. And this, he hasn't stayed at the same team. He's moved. Um, so... I think he's going to disrupt quite a lot there. And I think Valverde is ultimately going to be the guy who loses out because in the Grand Tours, he's going to be expected to work for either Quintana or Lander, depending on what point in the season it is. And I don't think he'll enjoy that. But, you know, unless he takes a dramatic improvement and really improves on what he did last year, despite a fantastic result at all three Grand Tours, um, his time of competing and really challenging for the podium if not the top step of the podium in a grand tour is over so i think he'll reluctantly fall into the uh, domestique role um so w- one thing i forgot to mention when we were talking about the herald sun tour was the opening pr- prologue it was won by great britain's ed ed clancy 1.6 kilometers the distance less than two minutes effort and you was- he paid for that because that is perfect for Ed Clancy. It if you exactly, can write down, write down a length, that is exactly what he needs. He's a track rider, for those you who don't yeah, know. Yeah, he's a three-time Olympic champion in the team pursuit, not just any track rider. <laughs> he is, this is perfect for him, 1.6 kilometres. Is there any point Imagine really, how much bigger a he is. That? I can see why they do it, because it ensures a, a close race, because what you don't want is a race like that. On the opening stage, you don't want two big gaps, so the whole tour isn't won on the first day. And I think Clancy won by seven hundredths of a second in that, which makes it makes for exciting race. Racing, but I suppose the Herald Sun Tour, it's very short, 1.6 kilometres, especially for a, a prologue, or not a prologue, but any race. Um, but I suppose you don't want two big gaps coming on. But as you said, it suits Ed Clancy perfectly. And it's great to see that JRT Condor, a British um, continental team, um, defeating the likes of the, the, the World, World Tour opposition and in fact he was only the 10th rider off so I think he so Clancy's time in the hot seat was actually the same as over 50 of his race winning efforts 
It's very impressive. I'll tell you what, 1.6K is my optimum length as well. You know, that's as long as I... I don't think I could even cycle for that far. Oh, I'm sure you can. It's not be ridiculous. But I, imagine the difference in size between Ed Clancy and Nairo Quintana. Ed Clancy would lap him on 1.6 kilometers. That's ridiculous. But yeah, and I think it's great to see him maybe make that transition over from being a full-time track rider and also getting a... Because uh, I've always wondered, like, could he have maybe followed Garrett Thomas well, this, this is an interesting and Peter Kenner onto the road? We've seen other track riders, the likes of Bradley Wiggins, you see from him you see Grant Thomas has also um, gone for that a lot of tr- British track riders go onto the onto the, the road but Ed Clancy is always uh, his sole focus has always been on the, the on the track he has rode domestically for JLT Condor for quite a long time the tour series that takes place in Great Britain he always r- r- rides in that uh, but yeah he's interesting that the fact that he is one of the riders who he, who hasn't really focused solely on the road he hasn't really made that jump but yeah, but the Britain, the Britain's track team are probably the, the most successful in the crossover. You know, I don't know of many other um, national track riders who have made as successful a transition. Australia has quite a few because they have a tremendous track um, team. Um, but I think it's probably be more common in the future, um, depending on what team they're from and nationality. Um, but yeah, it's always an interesting kind of storyline to follow, um, and. I'm not sure he would do great on the climbs. He's a That's big guy. He's a very... Um, well, in fact, just uh, when the... I think it was after the 2012 Olympic Games, during the, the switch, obviously, um, Chris, Chris Hoy left. I'm pretty sure Ed Clancy actually had a, a spell um, with the team sprint team. I'm sure he uh, was one of the, the, the men that used to compete in... Just, it was just at the start of the Rio Olympic cycle. Um, so I think he is a bit more of a, a sprinter, maybe a, a lead-out a, a, a lead man rather than the likes of Grant Thomas and Bradley Wiggins, who are almost like an, an all-rounder. But it was great to see Ed, Ed, Ed Clancy... Um, defeating Walter opposition and a great start to the to the year for him. Shall we look forward to kind of some of the other races in February and talk about some kind of the, the news? So, as you might have heard, there's the Rusdale Soul coming up with the uh, soon recently announced Chris Froome riding that race. But before that, there is plenty of other good races as well. Um, I'm particularly looking forward to the Tour of Oman. It's a race which has been more significant in the past and maybe less so as of recent um, because I think it was unworld toured or it at least was previously on World Tour, or maybe it's never been World Tour, um, but a lot of the less big riders stopped going there. I'm not sure if it maybe ties in with the fact that maybe they got helped to go there in the past. I'm not sure if there was some sort of deal with the teams. Um, but that's always an interesting race. The, the great story from that race in previous years, well, not a great story for the rider, but somebody threw a mattress across the road as a protest, and a rider crashed into the mattress, and he was actually quite hurt, but... Um, it's just a bit of a bizarre event you would have thought that happened anywhere else um, but it's always an entertaining well, sure, surely if there was anybody around him they would think what on earth is he doing with, with, with this mattress and try and stop him because I don't think in oh man like, I could it's, be wrong I don't think in oh man they just will casually walk down the street with a, a, a mattress I don't think house. anywhere they do it's quite heavy um, but it's very impractical although to be fair I can think of worse things to crash into um, at least it was a, 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 a soft landing in a mattress yeah. so that we, we, sh- we shouldn't really joke be about that because if, if he was injured or even you should not be throwing anything in the road especially mattresses I remember was it the Tour of Britain or certainly a race last year when a umbra- I, think, I think it was the Tour of France when a, a, go- a, a garden umbrella, umbrella blew into the road and the peloton had to swerve to avoid it. There's great videos on YouTube of dog, dogs running into the peloton, horses yeah, running into the peloton. Dogs could easily... Yeah. Oh, um, one for you guys to look up. Philip Gilbert, in the tour, I think it was in Tour de France, um, I think a dog ran into the road and he crashed as a result. He was very unhappy. What a um, surprise. Retrospectively, it's slightly funny. Um, but I felt funny. for him. I think it's funny. No, no, just, just his reaction, honestly. His reaction was quite amusing. Um, but yeah, um, they, these sorts of things happen in cycling. After that, uh, there's also the Vuelta at Algarve, which previously has been really hotly contested with some of the Grand Tour favourites, um, but it hasn't quite got... That's where Chris at, Froome started the season last year, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it hasn't got quite as big of a... Um, as a lineup this year, especially because the Ruta del Sol starts on the 14th of February as well, and that's got a slightly better lineup, in my opinion. Um, so, but both of those are two HC races, which is um, 
two levels below the world tour so in cycling for those you don't know you have the world tour which is the majority of the big races in the year then you have one hc races and then you have two hc races um some of the classification is weird sometimes you look at races like the Ruta del sol or the tour of a man which have kind of been reasonably more significant in recent years but they're two hc well there are other the Classica del Almira, which is a race that I've never personally watched, but that's a one HC race. So don't always pay attention too much to classification. I think after, if it's not a world tour race, just kind of look at the, um, the lineups. I think that's a good way of normally judging it. Um, but those uh, kind of Spanish and Andalusian uh, stage races are fun. The Tour of Oman is fun. And then as we get later into this uh, February, we have the Abu Dhabi Tour, which is pretty much exclusively a sprinter's yeah, race. We, we've got the Dubai Tour happening um, this That's week. Good. It started this morning. Um, and it's always like, like Ali said, a battle of the sprinters. In terms of the, 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 the Dubai Tour, Mossel Kittel uh, won the overall last year and in 2016. Uh, but it wasn't the greatest of starts to his Katusha Alperson um, start. Uh, start to his c- career uh, because he had a, a, me- a me- mechanical um because, and I think he finished about 17th or 18th. He finished just behind Mark Cavendish. Mark Cavendish wasn't able um, to contest a sprint. So it was a frantic and hectic um, sprint finish this afternoon because um, about 10 kilometres to go, there was a crash which and the sprint. And then it was a very technical finish as well. The last 10 kilometres, a couple of obstacles. But Team Lolotto and Al Jumbo for Dylan Gronewegen, who won the, the stage, and also Quick Step Floors, Elia Viviani, who's moved from Team Sky, um, they did two superb um, leaders but did Dylan Granovagan he won obviously on the Champs-Élysées last year last year's um, Tour de France it was a breakthrough win but he's been around for a few years now um I think this is his 22nd race win and I think it was a timely reminder of his, of his class and he's he's 24 now but he's certainly up there with the elite sprinters and he could this could be his year he's one of those sprinters which I put in the classification of they're not necessarily at this stage of their career going to do big things um, in a grand tour you know they might nab a stage but I can't see them winning multiples um, but they're kind of on the verge it's a bit like a um, Brian Cocker um, who I've, I've, put, a, I've put D- D- Dylan Grunewagen way above Brian Cocker but yeah, we've seen in the Tour of France that Brian Cocker has done some fantastic riding last year he was missed out of the Tour uh, and some other races because he fell out with his team and he's um, his team also didn't get a World Tour uh, sorry a World Card invite to the Tour de France so that was a bit of a bitter blow for him so he's not going to be running the tour again this year um, I don't know personally if I was him I would have signed with a world tour team to maybe guarantee that entrance because he's good enough to be there especially um, I'd say he's you know in the top 10 best sprinters in the world especially on his day but doing, it's hard to sometimes look at these um, early races and extrapolate certain things you can retrospectively sometimes but I think it's an important point that um the sprinting is going to be shaken up this year because you know a lot of the sprinting teams have moved around. Um, Dimension data have been settled for a couple of years. Same with Lotto, and but you know Viviani has now gone to Quick Step from Team Sky, so he's actually going it's to have a, bit, a proper a big lead opportunity out. for him uh, because he's shown. Well, he's another rider that has ridden on the on the, the track before, but Quick Step floors again they've had the most wins of anybody last year and you won't bet against them this year because they, the strength in depth that they've got in terms of the sprinters you've got the likes of Fernando Gigaviria who I think he won in Colombia um, on, on, uh, earlier um, this morning um, Elia Viviani then you've got the likes of um, obviously David La Cruz has moved on but they've still got a lot a lot of time the classics then, this, then also the I Ron think they're Biller, weaker than last year though if you look at it this way, they lost Tom Boudin. So in the Cobble well, Classics... But they lost him quite early on last year. Well, Tom Boudin's not really done much for the past few years. Oh, he finished um, second in the 2017 Paris-Roubaix, which isn't a bad performance. Yeah, it's not bad. But if you look at that also, losing Marcel Kittel was a huge blow because he's such a big sprinter. And Gaviria is a different type of rider. He's not one who's... I don't think Gaviria would beat Kittel on a straight-out flat sprint in perfect conditions. You know, he might beat him if it's a bit more technical and a bit more uphill, but a quick step this year are going to be a bit more stage hunting and a bit less dominant, in my opinion. You know, they have Julien Alaphippe, who's kind of teetered on the edge of um, being a really standout rider of the year. He did very well at Milan-San Remo last year, but 
occasionally slightly flattered to see if you want him to maybe either you know start winning much more you know significant races or maybe transition to being a, a GC rider in some stages. So I think I'm not that bullish on Quick Step this year. They've made quite a lot of, tra- um, of changes to their roster, but if you look at some of their big classic hunters, Zenek Stebar his for his potential and what he was built up to be a couple of years ago is kind of flattered to deceive. And there are, you know, other riders like that. Nicky Terpstra is a rider who did very well in winning uh, Paris-Roubaix. But since, I can't think of a very significant result that he's had since. He hasn't really done very much. It's almost like he accepted that that was the peak of his career. So they will inevitably prove me wrong and do very well. They have an incredible roster. But I am... They've got a very young squad, a lot of 22, 21, 23-year-olds. Um, but I would maybe hold off a bit from last year. I can't see them quite repeating as big of a year as they did uh, previously. But I was just looking at their, the, 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 the transfers out. So you've got like the Matteo Trenton. He's a, another sprinter, did uh, very well at the Valter Spagna, won quite a few stages there. He's moved to... Mitchell and Scott now. Marcel Kikit was obviously moved on. David Cruz moved to Team Sky. Dan Martin did very well the Tour de France last year, I think it was. He's moved to UAE Team Emirates. Um, Julian Vermont's moved on. Jack Bowers moved on. I'm sorry, Bram Biller's actually moved on. Uh, but then if you look at the team, they've got the likes of Bob Youngles, a very good young rider. He's a good young rider. Uh, Julian Alaphilippe. Then you've got the likes of Fernando Gaviria. Max Ribicesi, I think, is one of the best uh, lead up man in the business. Philippe Gilbert, we saw his fantastic performance. Uh, last year in one of the, the classics as you mentioned Stybar Nicky Terpstra um, the, the, the list goes on so they have still got strength in depth sorry what were you going to say about I'd say yes but Bob Youngles isn't going to win a Grand Tour he's not going to pony win a Grand Tour Philip Gilbert is 35 this year and although he had an unbelievable season last year and I'm not sure if he's on a one year contract again because he always says well in a contract year but I just can't quite see him you know having as big of a year last year you know he was so good in the classics he won one monument and you know expecting the chances of him doing that again and repeating that not many people win monuments in back-to-back years it hasn't been one for a couple of seasons now and so you know Sagan who is you know one of the best riders in the sport struggles to do that and I think Philip Gilbert would be hard fetched to repeat that, but they have some great riders. I am a big fan of Ilio Kisa. His story is incredible. For those who don't know it, there's a great piece on Cycling News about it. Um, but they also have quite a lot of young riders, um, especially from South America. Uh, Peter Vakoch, 25, is a good rider, but I think Viviani is a bad signing. Um, I think there's a reason why Viviani was at Team Sky in the first place, and I don't think it was the fact that he had a bad lead out. Um, which is the reason he didn't win as much. I think if he was able to win even more than he was doing at the probably at the time, he definitely was if he given more opportunities. But I never considered him to be one of the best sprinters in the world, and that wasn't because of the leader. That just because I didn't think he had quite the tone of speed as other riders, especially in bunt sprints at the end of uh, long stages. So I think he'll do better, but I can't quite see him doing as well. It'd be interesting to also see, you know as we have to look at every year, how riders age. You know, we spoke about Philip Gilbert being old, but on the other side of the coin, in the sprinting terms, Cavendish is getting on. And although, you know, if you said that to him, he'd probably, you know, end the interview or storm away or... Because he's closing in on that Eddie Merckx record. Is it four he's been, away now? He's been, four stages yeah, but away. he didn't get any last year and he was very unlucky last year. Um, but four is still a big task. People think, you know, he's only four, Cavendish is one say, six. Considering the, the, the amount of sprinting t- t- talent that's out there, because uh, we haven't mentioned that's probably a- two Andre, seasons Gre- Andre Greipel, he may be getting on a bit as well, but he's he won two stages at the Tour, 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 and Under. The likes of Caleb Ewan, another uh, young sprinter, he's emerged as a real contender in the sprints the last few years. Dylan Grunewagen, Peter Sagan, Marcel Kitter, Fernando Gaviria. The list goes on. The... It's great time for to from a. It's great. To, there's so much sprinting to talent there now. It is great to watch. I'm going to make a prediction. I think we're going to see a chain, a kind of a. a we saw a bit of a change in the guard over the last couple of years, but I think this season is going to be the one where we really look back at it and think, yeah, that was the season where everything kind of fundamentally changed. I think Marcel Kittel is going to be good as usual. He'll take a bit of time to 
kind of um, get used to riding with his new lead out um, slightly changed roster there especially at the new team but I think I can't see Greipel and Cavendish being as good as they were a couple of years ago and I think Gaviria and Caleb Ewan are the future of sprinting and I think uh, they're both going to get more support I think Caleb Ewan is going to the tour which is going to be interesting because um, you have the Yates twins as well and at least one of them will be going to the tour so how are you going to split that up and divide the team with an eight-man roster and getting support for both those riders is difficult but I think you know that is a big investment by Orica they know Mitchell and Scott by by Mitchell and Scott they know what of a talented rider they've got there and so I think this year we're going to see a change of the guard I don't think Greipel is going to be as competitive as he was in the past in Grand Tours and I think Cab's going to get very frustrated because I don't think he's ever going to break the record four stages of the Tour de France is an awful lot you know most riders they win one stage that's a career defining moment and I don't know it's Cavendish and he's won six stages previously but he hasn't won more than four stages for a long time so if you look at it realistically he's got to do it over a couple more seasons to break that record and I think last year's um, illness and injuries was a big blow to him because I can't quite see him ever breaking that record. But still, you know, his position in the sport and his legacy is already cemented. It's not going to make much of a difference because he's still the greatest sprinter of all time. But he he wants that record. He wants that record. Um, and, and talking of sprinters, actually, Jacob Hennessy, he's a young, Br- 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 a young British rider. Um, he rides for Michelin Bike Exchange, um, which is... Mitchell and Scott's now uh, development team. Um, they're the only continental team in the Tour of Dubai. Um, and he actually has sixth on today's stage. His first race with Mitchell and Bike Exchange. He didn't ride for a team last year. He competed for Great Britain's under-23 team. Uh, he rode for JRT Condor in 2016. Um, but last year he won the under-23 Ghent Vagelwurm. Um he had a, won a, a stage of Trophy Paris Aris Tour, which is a junior race in France, finished fifth overall, and he had just finished outside the top ten on the Tour de Yorkshire uh, stage one. Um, so Jacob Hennessy, sixth on his um, his de- debut race for um, Mitchell and Bike Exchange, he could be one to watch um, to see how he, he develops over the, this season and the, the next few. Is that maybe a way to cheat the system? If you have a Mitchell and Bike Exchange and Mitchell and Scott at the same race, you've effectively got a 16-man roster maybe that's the way forward you know maybe that's what um, you know someone's going to take to the Tour de France this year to try and tackle Team Sky um, but no yeah it's in, I I like the fact when teams have their own teams Lotus Tudor's had it for a long time and they've um, they've got some good riders out there I don't think they've necessarily missed most of it and it's really hard justifying the cost because as we see and as some teams got very frustrated with Team Sky last year it doesn't matter if you're there in your development team because no rider or the best riders won't sign their future away um, they'll wait and see what options are available and you know other teams instead of spending that money can just come and poach your best riders so it's good for the sport that it happens I would like to see a cycling draft you know I've, it's NFL week we've just had the Super Bowl I think it'd be really fun and a great leveller in the sport if there was a draft system. So how, how would you propose it works? So the way it would work is that if you finished um, last in the World Tour, you would get uh, the first pick in the draft. There'd be some sort of systems of exchanging picks and that ultimately um, each team would kind of in, 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 in would get the, would have to pick new riders up um, from the draft system. Um, so a independent panel would rank, you know, these are the best people or so-and-so. This is how it works. You get first choice, second choice. And um, like in American sports, it kind of levels the playing field in terms of who recruits the best new talent um, and kind of switches the boat around. Because otherwise, what we see in professional football and even in professional rugby and other sports is that the best teams the most wealthy teams recruit the best talent and that it prevents as many other teams as winning in American football um, we often see teams you know have cycles of development which are much shorter and turnaround cycles much faster and I think it makes for a more exciting sport if the bigger teams don't have such a monopoly and especially with the cycling Cycling's budget not looking like it's ever going to be capped. Um, I'd be surprised if the UCI president ever did that. What should teams be punished just for having a bigger budget? And also, some of the top teams to develop 
talent very well. Look at Team Sky. We've discussed them before. The likes of Luke Luke Rowe. He's become one of the best domestiques in the peloton. We look at some of the, the young talent coming through um, from the uh, well, Team Sky have signed a number of the, the top riders, young riders from last year. Egan Bernal already impre- Im- impressing in both the Tour Down Under and also in the, the, the in Columbia this week. So should they be punished and do you think it has a, a massive impact? I don't think it has the same impact I think as it, football. It's not that the fact that they should be punished. I think you should kind of look at it as a whole sport perspective and then it'd be better for the sport overall. Because, you know, the likes of FDJ could then get a, I don't know, a young Nairo Quintana or an Egan Bernal for a couple of years and he might podium in the tour. I think cycling because of the world tour restrictions and how budgets work um, everybody has to have a certain amount of funding and the way cycling teams are constructed they each go for a couple of stars don't they you know even FDJ have Thibaut Pinot and some other good riders who could potentially podium at a grand tour or in a classic I would like to see it for a couple of years you know a three year contract um, after that they can do what they want um, I'm not quite sure how it would work in terms of the riders getting paid what they're owed um, you'd maybe have to determine some sort of market value um, and it'd be a complicated system. But I think it'd be one way of maybe levelling it and helping some of the lower budget teams um, do well. And, you know, I think, you know, people start doing very well at a team, maybe they wouldn't want to move, they'd accept a slightly lower salary and it would help other teams and it'd make the sport more competitive. But doesn't it mean that some of the side young riders might not be not re, re, re reach their potential. They might not be developed in the in the right way. Because obviously, some of the, you could argue that the best coaches are at the better teams. Because that's why. So isn't it maybe you're going to hamper their their development as a rider? Well, I think as a coach, as a rider, you always generally pick the coaches who there'll be several coaches at the team, and you kind of discuss which one you mesh with well. I think you know it's a bit like in. Other sports, you know, the best coaches probably are towards the top of the league. But in, if you look at this aspect, you know, it's still the teams who would decide who they picked up, they, who they sign. It'd be quite unfair on the riders because they don't get a say in it. They just kind of have to ch- go where they go. Um, but, you know, it is it is how it is. I think it'd be a great opportunity for some riders to maybe experience teams that they wouldn't necessarily get a chance to and also for other teams. Um Bit of a, you know, I can't ever see a franchise system getting into the cycling. I think it'd be brilliant. You know, if you say twenty teams every year have a guaranteed world tour spot, um, and then that license is a value, and it would much help the sponsorship side of the sport, which we've talked about before, because sponsors would be able to say, "I know you're going to be at the biggest race in the world, the Tour de France, for the next foreseeable future, so it is worth me investing money in you." Um, and uh, you know allocating that capital Um, and that's one of the sponsors uh, one of the issues that Jonathan Vortis has spoken about and the uncertainty there um, about the fact that if you don't have a certain amount of capital you can't get into the world tour and you can't get that without guarantee of getting into the world tour so I think it'd be an interesting development in the future but I can't see it happening no I can't see it happening either Um, so we're coming to the end of the podcast but we did say we would talk about Perhaps the, the topic that is really hung over like a cloud over the off season, and that is of course Chris Froome, because just before um, when we recorded our end of season review in December, the news had just broken about Froome, and but it, it was a shame because really we should have been reflecting on what was a, an historic year for Chris Froome after he won a fourth Tour de France title and followed that up with victory in the Vuelta Espana, and again now we should we should be looking forward really to Froome riding the the, 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 the Giro d'Italia and trying to hold all three Grand Tours at the same time and then trying to win a fifth successive Tour, 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 Tour de France title but instead we're discussing this latest saga and it doesn't really seem any more clear about what, what what's going to happen yeah there's been a lot of reports a lot of theories and I'll touch on a couple of them Sue, recently um, in Correa de la Sela there was a report that Chris Froome was going to accept responsibility for a reduced ban and I don't know where they got their sources from there because they Chris, Chris Froome quickly very categorically said on Twitter this is not true basically in, it's a in any manner r- r- rubbish basically um, which is for a relatively respectable paper fairly damning it shows that they really didn't do their job as journalists but I think there's also been a story I heard about um, 
uh, Chris Froome, you know, maybe getting a respective ban, it maybe being around May, if you look how long it took for the Diego Lucy case to be. It's a very difficult one to prove. I suppose it I all think depends it, on historically how long it's going to take Chris, Chris, Chris Froome to prove. Because ultimately, it's the, the, the onus is now onto, onto Chris Froome to, to prove himself. that he did, didn't take... Um, as much as it said, and he was he, he was lower than what the limit should be. So it's really how, however long Chris 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 Room wants. But one thing's for sure: Team Sky, Chris Chris, Chris Room, the, the UCI. I think everybody in the cycling world does not want this to be dragged out for for too long. Um, as we've seen, so many of the writers that come out and said this is bad for the sport. It this is, is, it is. this shouldn't be happening. And um, one thing which we touched on before is again, this should never come out. Um, no, I, I totally. We, that's we, spe- that we speculated previously yep. that we think it's probably leaked on the UCI side as a lot of doping cases have. Well, well this is the what has happened is when it originally came out it was the I can't remember the exact the Guardian and Licky. The, the Guardian and a French newspaper um I guess said to the Team Sky and or the UCI, look, we've we've heard this from who what, what however whatever source it was, we've heard this um we're going to publish it. So Team Sky and UCI then published um, a statement re- releasing it just before the Guardian article, and I'm all for tr- I'm all for tr- transparency in anything and, and sport especially. But I do think that uh, on matters like this, it should have been kept quiet until a, a, a conclusion. Whether well, the rules was, whether it was innocent that... or whether that it there was whether that he, he he did in fact it, he did in fact take more than he should have done. But I I think because otherwise. There's been lots of speculation about whether he, he did it or not. It's better just being quite. I'm all for transparency in in every walk of life, but I do think when it's matter of innocence and whether because the thing now now nowadays it always used to be you are innocent until proven proven guilty, but nowadays it seems to be the way around. It seems to people seem to jump on the bandwagon, read social media, which social media hasn't helped because people think they know what's happening, but they don't and. The fact is, he should be innocent until proven guilty. But I can see why some people, because Chris Froome has announced he's going to make his season debut at the Ruta del Sol in a few weeks. And I can see why some people have said that, um, is that against Team Sky's moral code? Should should Chris Froome... Be, should Chris Froome be, be riding when he's under investigation? But is he actually under investigation? Yes, he is. I think, you know, he's had a... He did 21 doping tests, which is actually a phenomenal amount at the Vuelta, um, compare, especially when you compare it to other sports. In uh, at UFC, have a very good programme, but a lot of their athletes have never been tested 21 times in their, in several years. Chris Froome reproduced an analytical result, which requires explaining. And the rules of such a result is that because you're not provisionally suspended, like you are if you test yeah, positive it, for EPO. It, it, is not an, it is not an anti-doping violation, is it? It's an adverse test, which it's is where people test. seem to have got confused. It's an adverse test. It's not an anti-doping violation. And so in that process, he is at the moment presumed innocent which is why he's not suspended which is right you should, you should be pre- presumed innocent and, and the rules are such that it should never have come out and Dave Brailsford um, has had an interesting interview today with over in Columbia and I think if you read between the lines I think it's fair and if you look at what team the Froome camp has said in my opinion it's fairly clear that it probably didn't emanate from Team Sky I'm purely speculating here um, but I think a worrying thing for the sport is one these doping cases deserve and it's not just this case there's been plenty before it um, they deserve to be um, private until a resolution is put out in these cases in the analytical findings and the non kind of doping violations I think when you test positive for EPO and you're suspended I think the world should know because otherwise why aren't you racing but in this case in my opinion, you shouldn't be. You should have anonymity because if you are innocent and there's a very large chance that in these cases you are, um, then you deserve to not have your reputation destroyed. And that's the problem because even if it is cleared up and Froome is innocent, you do feel that there may be still some sort of cloud, a little bit of asterisk. People will still have doubts because that, unfortunately that is the, this, the world that we live in now. That is, that is especially because of the cycling's past, people will still have doubts. But if he's proven innocent, then he's innocent. I, was but speaking- I, I can see why um, he should still ride. And I, I think he should still ride because the problem is if he if he's proven innocent, then he can't get these races back in his preparation. He's, got to, he's still got to prepare for the Giro d'Italia. His race is coming up because 
if he is, it, if it, a case does come out that he is innocent, then he's he's lost a lot of training and preparation time for the big races. But I suppose the problem is, if he is guilty, then it may cause a few problems. In my opinion, I think he should be suspended. I should think he should self-suspend himself. One, I think it's the best move to make for his career because if he'd self-suspended himself in September after he finished racing, we'd be many months into the suspension and he probably wouldn't miss that if it, uh, many races, even if it was backdated. I think the way to look at it is also, although, you know, I feel sorry for Chris Froome, I've turned around to the point that I think it's better for the sport if he was suspended. I think if you look at it, the damage that it could cause cycling if he races to Giro and wins the race, but then has to give it up, that race would just be so undermined. And Chris Froome is one of the riders in the peloton. He might be a very important one, um, but he's just one. And I think he should... I think ultimately it sucks for him and there should be some sort of compensation but I think he probably should make that decision to suspend himself and the UCI president has come out and said as much and I think one thing which I discussed with another cycling fan uh, who I kind of speak to and discuss we were thinking that if Chris Froome is proven innocent um, there could be a very big lawsuit on the hands of the UCI um, especially if Team Sky and Chris Froome can prove that it didn't come from them. Well, I can um, say this is all speculation. We obviously don't know who the source is. It could be. Yeah, absolutely. Connected. But I think um, that's a worrying one for the sport because, you know, we could see riders, you know, have a go at the UCI and potentially um, we've seen this almost with UCAN in the UK that uh, recently with the boxing um, with Tyson Fury, UCAN were almost bankrupted and they had to accept a settlement with uh, Tyson Fury because otherwise they didn't have the money to fight the legal case. Um, I think going forward, the UCI, um, too many of these stories have leaked out and because we've seen it on such a history of cases and because it damages the riders, um, you know, I'm sure there's leaks on both sides of the track and I think the UCI has to work much better to uh, address that in the future because that is their role in the sport. They're meant to be, you know, in the middle and it's going to be interesting to see how this case plays out. It's going to a UCI tribunal panel Honestly, I don't know what's taking them so long. I can only imagine that Froome is preparing his defence. He's apparently assembled a very well-regarded legal team and a very expensive legal team. Um, and I think it will play out for quite a long time because if Chris Froome could easily, easily prove his innocence, I think he would have done that by now. And oh, I think... And, uh, no, but it's not law, law, um things like this involved in law take time you know what lawyers are like solicitors they take forever just to try and but the reality of this out. case it's is a very complex case so I suppose it's not going really, to but I think the fact that Chris Froome is still riding has announced he's going ret- to uh, return to to restart his season in a few weeks just shows that he must be quite confident, confident that he's he's going to be be cleared over this but what yeah exactly and I think you know that shows a lot as well um, but it also is kind of a you know I think if Chris Froome wants to self-suspend, I think one of the issues with Team Sky thinking about it publicly-wise is almost an omission of guilt or a mission of kind of non-lack of confidence, which you know you you wouldn't have. And but I suppose in 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 any organisation, whether that's sporting or if it's business, if you are under investigation, quite often you are disciplined and they say you are suspended pending an investigation the thing that I will worry about is the re- reaction that's going to be on the roads because we've seen that in the past few years especially in the Tour de France the reaction of some of the fans hasn't been great towards Team Sky or Chris Froome I think it was was it two years ago when he had urine thrown at him in, in, in the past um, and I do worry what the reaction is going to be like for Chris Froome on, on the roads but at the, at the moment, he's he's innocent. He's, he's he says he's he he says that he's done nothing wrong. Team Sky have said that he took less, so he he's innocent. And as with some previous cases, especially with if you, it's slightly different with the TUE cases. But if you look at kind of the TU issue, TUE issue as a whole, you know this adverse analytical finding problem where riders are saying that Team Sky should suspend themselves. You know, ultimately the rules come down to it's the UCI's fault and it's Wada's fault. You know, they should have in my opinion, better rules. I don't think they should even make a decision that you... They should make it a bit more black and white. I think if you have an analytical finding, maybe make it so that a rider has to be suspended because otherwise you are in this bizarre position or make it definite that and more definitive in the rules that they shouldn't be suspended or so on and so forth and that the ban wouldn't be 
wouldn't start when you haven't suspended yourself. So at the moment, the situation with Chris Froome is that because he hasn't suspended himself, any ban that would come in would start as of now and then run forward. Whereas if he had, um, he would kind of be suspended. Whereas in my opinion, maybe they'd have a distant system where they suspended you for, I don't know, half the time. And it was also post dated back to some of the results. But I think the situation where, um, you know, if you believe you're innocent and then you're punished for believing you're innocent in some ways is a bad one. And I think the UCI, you know, in my opinion, they have the best anti-doping program in the world, but I think they've got some work to do. I suppose in terms of the, the, the rules, I suppose the reason why there was n- there is no suspension for if it's an adverse test is because I suppose these cases normally are kept quiet i can imagine but the fact that it was publicly released means that obviously people are aware of it now but i and i think i speak on behalf of all cycling fans hope that this is all behind us soon and it is all cleared up because no one likes a cloud hanging over and any uh, any sport any situation any rider because it's not it's not 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 good for the sport it's not healthy for the sport especially cycling's past but i'm hoping that soon it'll be all cleared up um, one way or another hopefully it will be cleared up because we don't like talking about it well I, I don't know Ollie maybe I wish like it wasn't it. there to be perfectly honest you know and it'd be the same with any other rider um, you know no one wants as a fan any anti-doping violations everyone wants a completely clean sport where we get the best riders riding against each other you know without injury without illnesses the entire time I think this is an occasion where we could get that taken away from the fan as, as fans you know I want to see you know can Tom Dumoulin beat through I want to see you know the next generation of Grand Tour riders come through and this is the thing this is this is the, the, the frustrating part about this whole thing is this should have been a brilliant year of cycling we've got so much young young talent coming through last year's Grand Tour was some of the best especially the Giro d'Italia new new battles have, have emerged with Tom Dumoulin potentially against Chris Froome then Chris Froome announced he was going to ride the Giro d'Italia a big surprise and it's going to be history in the making it should have been a brilliant year to look forward to but this has cast a shadow over it all and sadly that's taken the headlines away from what should have been a, br- a brilliant year of cycling but let's hope it's resolved soon exactly. and I believe let's it will be it's... because it's such a significant moment for the UCI and especially for the UCI president he doesn't have any impact on it he can't have any impact on the result or how it turns out but I think he probably can have an impact on making it happen quicker um, by maybe you know devoting resources to both Team Sky and to the panel to speed up the process and hopefully that's the case um, but yeah it's it's bad for cycling's credibility but I'm just going to have a bit of a rant about cycling and I think you know this Team Chris Froome case is ultimately insignificant it's for the grand scheme of things you know it's not a drug which tarnishes his entire career's reputation it's an asthma medication which he's perfectly entitled to take there's just been uh you know an adverse analytical finding let's call it that um but for example, especially in the British media, and for those of you guys who are abroad, um, I think you'll probably maybe have seen some of this in your own. Um, today, uh, I, uh, there was a uh, British boxer who is tested positive for a steroid, and he's been suspended for several years. And the reaction in the media was of sympathy for him because he was still claiming his innocence. Whereas in Chris Froome, got such a harder time for an adverse analytical finding, which is in the grand scheme of things, is fairly insignificant. And in my opinion... You know that one race wouldn't, and what that stage taking twice the asthma medication probably didn't impact the result of the race. You know, it shouldn't have happened, um, but it didn't impact. You know, whereas steroids, especially in a sport like that, is much more significant because um, you're causing harm to another human being. So it's often good to put things into perspective. And although it is very frustrating, don't get me wrong, um, I've kind of taking this time away from the sport and away from podcasting to kind of dismiss it almost and kind of try and remind myself that in the grand scheme of things it's as small of a and because of it the rider if you forget the fact that it's Chris Froome it's as small of a analytical finding or adverse result of a test if you're gonna you know have a bad test result for anything this is up there on the best um, and is, it's is that even way. possible? Is that even it, possible? It's not a good thing to have it happen. Yeah. No one would want it. But, you know, it, it's the least significant of any um, anti-doping test in terms of credibility, in terms of what I think of the rider as a result that I've ever seen. Um, so I think some perspective is always good. Um, and just kind of leave you guys with that note. 
Um, so before we do, I just want to end. I don't like ending on a, ne- a, ne- a negative note. So putting the Froome case um, aside, and I'm going to ask you, what are you most looking forward to this year in terms of cycling? But it cannot be a, re- a, re- a conclusion to the whole Froome case. What are you most looking forward to? That's hard because at the moment that is honestly the case. And that's, that's the problem. So much because we're going to do predictions. You can't, predict, years, you can't, can't predict, predict the Giro or the Vuelta or the Tour. In terms of Froome, will he be able to ride it? Whatever happens. But what are you most looking forward to? I'd say at the moment the classics. Um, partly because he has no impact upon that. But no, the classics are always the best part of the early season. Um, and they're incredible races. They're so different to the Grand Tours. And for many years, I didn't quite appreciate them as much as I do. But I absolutely love them. They're so unpredictable. I watched every single minute of Paris-Roubaix last year and I loved it and I probably shouldn't have done for my workload but it was great and it's a very unpredictable season you know we saw Philippe Gilder do very well Greg Van Avermaet was really the star last year and the king of the classics after being the second uh, position man you know the, the and so can he keep that up who else is going to come into the fold um, Team Sky won't have Luke Grow, who's a big classics rider. Um, they've signed some other good riders, but it's really kind of a new age in the classics era, especially with Cancellara and Budin finally both being retired. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that comes. I expect Sagan, he really needs to win a classics this season. You know, he's done very well at winning the uh, you know the world champs for the last couple of years, but it's almost like he's missing out on something if he doesn't win a classic because people expect him to. And he's only ever won one in his career, which is quite surprising for Peter Sagan. So I'm looking forward to that. Very good. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, well, I was looking forward to the, the, the Grand Tours and Chris Froome potentially riding the Giro and then the Tour de France. Having said that, let's hope it does still happen. We can have a great race on our hands with the likes of Tom Dumoulin, the battle we've all talked about, and also a lot of other GGTC contenders. Maybe there'll be another surprise as well because with cycling, you just never know who the, the next unknown rider is going to be to win a stage. I think that's one of the most great things about cycling you don't know literally a rider who you've never heard of could just pop up into a breakaway and go in to win a stage and even with the main riders you know last year we had Pugate which was uh, very unpredicted, uh, unpredictable and surprising um, so we don't know what's going to happen this year and that suspense that unknown that unpredictability is what you know helps govern and you know make sports so exciting and so fascinating and so inspiring so I'm really looking forward to 2018 absolutely and that's ultimately why we love this sport if you enjoy the show please subscribe leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about us we really appreciate all the support thank you for listening